to shrink the gap between having the capital and the interest to actually owning the home. And so that's everything leading up to the home. The consumer buys it back from us. We get a cut of that transaction. As they close and take full title of the home, we'll manage it too. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here. And today I am joined by a special co-host, Jason Kleiman, Director of Investor Relations at Good Egg Investments. Jason, how are you today? Hi, Annie. It's a great day again. So I get to be online with you. That's right. You're a natural at this stuff. You're like an Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Oprah and I were just talking this morning. She said I'm a there natural, so I think I'm in. Yeah, well... Tell everybody what's been going on in your life lately. You know, life has been really good. We're traveling a lot. The team's been getting together. We're launching new deals. Hopefully everybody's seen out there. We've got a nice hotel deal that's being finalized as we speak. So that's exciting. The year has been up and down, but overall, it's been really great. We've had huge success and I'm really looking forward to the last three months of the year to see how things close out. Yeah. I know. And as we're recording this, we just got back from our our team on site in Vegas, where we had a whole, almost an entire week of really intense discussions, talking about the mission, what's coming up, different projects that we're going to pursue. And Mm. isn't it always just so fun? I mean, consider it such a big blessing that we get to work with people that we love so much. And even though we're all remote, we always take the opportunity to get together in person. And there's just nothing like it. I thought about this after we got back and we literally just got back a couple of days ago, but we were in these intense meetings for an entire week for five days between the hours of nine and five o'clock. And we usually take a break for lunch, but then we'd have lunch together. We'd order food and we'd have lunch together. And then we'd take maybe an hour and a half break. And then we'd get together for dinner and then have some evening entertainment, but we were all together. And after a week, everybody still liked each other. Everybody still (laughs) wanted to be around each other. And nobody got this sense like, gosh, we've been together for hours or this or that. And I think we've all been part of organizations in the past where maybe that just wasn't the case. But there is a special environment within this world that we find ourselves in within the world of Good Egg. And it has really been great. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it always comes back to the people on the team. Tony Shea always said that about Zappos is the people, it's the people on the team that make the culture. And if Mm. there's magic among the people on the team, then the customers on the other end are going to feel that too. And that's the magic we're trying to foster through our team. But I know it's so much in line with the team at DoorVest as Mm. well, which we're highlighting on our show today. We've got as our guest today, Andrew Luong. He is the co-founder and CEO at DoorVest. And he He talks about, man, his story started out with him as a young person identifying that financial security was this thing that he needed in his life, but really not having been taught much about it through his upbringing with his parents, but really discovering through, he talks about how his life is like a Roomba. He tries all these different things and he hits a wall and he tries the next thing, but mm-hmm. slowly but surely he made his way to real estate. And he tells us not only about how he discovered real estate, but then how he went on to then create DoorVest, where he they now help lots and lots of people to invest in real estate as yeah. well. 
What I love about Andrew is he's so humble. He's not over the top in any way. He talks to people like normal human beings and he has real conversations and he comes from humble beginnings, some things that probably weren't easy for him, but he talks about them in a very positive way and life lessons. He's learned so much, has a great relationship with his family. And now he finds himself in this incredibly successful business where he gets to have this direct impact on families and individuals all over the country. It's an inspirational story, and it's really fun to talk about. Indeed. And for any of our listeners, if you're new to the world of real estate, definitely listen all the way through the end. Andrew shares some really good nuggets about how he got started and how you can get started too. If you discover that you are wanting to be on the passive side of investing in real estate and you're new to the whole sphere, particularly of real estate syndications. We've got the perfect resource for you. It is our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodeginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with Andrew Luong. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. We were just chatting about this a little bit earlier. I'm so excited to think and talk about the intersection of life and money, stuff that I think I'm a little bit too obsessed with. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about it. That's the intersection where we live too, is all about life by design and how your money can help you get there. But Andrew, I know that through Dorvest, you and your partner, Justin, really had this vision to help take what the two of you had discovered through investing in single family homes and make it available to the masses so anybody could achieve financial freedom through real estate. Now, before we dive into all of that, I want you to start by taking us back, way back before you discovered real estate. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing then and how did you then discover real estate and why did you invest in that first property? Yeah. Wow. It might go back a little bit further than you're anticipating. Maybe not. So you were born on a stormy Friday morning. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit after that. Okay. uh, Okay. Definitely far back. No. So I'd probably say, and talk about this frequently, I'd probably say that the story kind of goes back to the last recession. Like I was growing up then, and I think similar to many Americans, like our family was facing financial hardship. Like my parents had a house foreclosed on and obviously was a a terrible experience for a kid growing up and going to probably high school at the time or so. I think even beyond that, the piece that really stuck with me, and I think we're already getting into the life and money piece, but the piece that really stuck with me was just The fact that the psychological element, like the fact that because our family unit lacked financial security, i.e. money, like that put our family unit in jeopardy. And so I still remember thinking to myself, like as a kid, I was like, if only we had more financial security, like my parents wouldn't be arguing and they wouldn't be disagreeing and they wouldn't have to, I don't know, discuss this bill and that bill and all that. And so that was kind of the memory that really stuck with me. But anyway, parents talk pretty like, did you know about all of this growing up? Did they share about the family finances with you? I think there were bits and elements of it. I think maybe what's commonly done is children are kind of shielded from it. But I would hear bits and pieces of it, whether it be like, I don't know, maybe my mom was so frustrated at something where she was like, yeah, like your dad's like spending money on that again. And like, we're not being financially good with that. Or my dad's like, yeah, well, 
we need to save because we can't afford it or things of that nature. I would see those elements of the friction at the margins. I don't think they certainly never sat me down and were like, here's how much income we make. Here's how much we're spending. And therefore we got to fix something here. I think I saw kind of the friction points at, at the margins. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of my upbringing too is, I don't know, do you have brothers and sisters? No. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't. So maybe a double-edged sword. In this instance, I think it was a bit of a negative in the sense I didn't really have others to, to kind of chat with and sort of confide in. But So Jason is an only child. I'm an only child as well. So oh, wow. look at us, three only children on this podcast. But yeah, same. When I was growing up, my parents, I don't think they ever sat me down to ever talk about finances seriously, but I would hear about the financial stressors here and there. And I knew that something was going on. I didn't know how to help or I didn't know what was really going on. And so tell us a little bit about, it seems like it came came to a head with the foreclosure in high school, that must have been a really big deal. Tell us about how you found out about that. How did you handle that? And then what happened after that? Yeah. I mean, I think reflecting on those moments, I think if I recall correctly, it was like we would see stacks of mail that would kind of begin to pile up. And there was clearly something that wasn't right there. And I think this is where probably saw like a breaking point between my parents. I mean, ultimately, at this point, I think they're happily married than they've ever been to date. And honestly, I would not have bet it bet on that at the time. But I think there was an element of like, they both kind of they saw differently, they couldn't figure it out together. And I think they kind of just threw in the towel and just turned a blind eye until one thing led to the next. Okay, so then you went through this in high school. It sounds like it was a big life changing situation. It must have had a big impact on then how you were seeing life and money after that point. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that was kind of the core genesis of it. If I was reflecting, sort of deeply reflecting back at those moments, I think that was one element across many other sort of stressors with the general theme being around finances. So even something as simple as like, oh, like we want to do a family dinner today, but like my parents would have to be like, should we go to restaurant A or B? And like, what's the cost? And like, there's differences there and there's tension there. And like, maybe we ordered too much or things of that nature. Like, All of these things, I think, looking backwards, the general theme was around sort of the lack of financial security. And for better or for worse, I mean, ultimately, that all led to sort of my obsession with trying to build resilience for for myself and trying to avoid what felt like the pitfalls that my parents got into because they lacked that, that financial security. I'm curious, though, did you create that on your own, that feeling where you needed to be resilient, that you needed to have some kind of another story? Was that something that you came up with or... Did your parents ever sit down with you and say, you know what, this is happening. It isn't great. We're going to figure out a way to get through it and we're going to do it together as a family. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, candidly, looking backwards, I wish that they kind of took the approach that you kind of outlined there. I don't think that's necessarily kind of what happened. I think it was kind of deductive reasoning for myself where I was like, okay, I see these friction points. They feel like they're stemming from finances somehow. And 
finances seem like something that is solvable. I mean, like there's sort of numbers. And if you live within, you don't have lifestyle creep, you live within your means and you make a certain level of income, you should be able to avoid this. There's really just two functions to that equation, which is like, kind of increasing your income or lowering your expenses or maybe some combination of the both. And so back to your initial question, it was it was probably just the collection of these events that led to my personal beliefs around it, where it was like, I see them fighting and I see their disagreements. And oftentimes the theme is around finances. And I think finances might be something that I could solve for at least myself, hopefully for my family at, at some point. The focus became sort of this laser focus on personal finances. It seems like something must have been talked about because for, for you guys to come out of that and for you to be to create what you've created and your parents still to be together and still and apparently have even better relationship today than what they would have at that point, that speaks to something. It must have been a good core set of values within the family that you guys really focused on. Yeah, I'd have to reflect back a bit more. And maybe this is a good topic for me to chat with my, my <laughs> therapist about in our coming sessions. That's why we're here. So just, yeah. uh, just open up. <laughs> well, thank you. I didn't realize I walked into this. This is great. No, I'd say like, um, in hindsight, there's still a bit of me that was like, wow, like, had my parents just been able to rally around solving this together collectively, like maybe we would have been better off or maybe we wouldn't have had to run into the foreclosure or things of that nature. I think when I look back, it was just like this collection of events that kind of informed a worldview that I think I still hold very deeply to today. So at that point, so you had identified this clear pain point, right? This financial security. And you were like, man, I can tackle this. If I can solve for this, I'm going to have a much better life, right? And so you've identified the pain point. So then how did you go about finding the answer? Did you think, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a really good job. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder and that's how I'm going to do it. Or did you think, well, I'm going to try something different than what my parents did, or I'm going to go ask somebody. How did you then eventually get to real estate? Yeah, the road is quite windy ahead too. And I think oftentimes when I look backwards, I think at the time, there's this analogy that I often use is like, I kind of see my life and my career as sort of this, almost like a Roomba, like one of those robot vacuums, like they're determined to go forward. And then they hit a wall and they're like, oh, I guess there's a wall and then it turns and whatnot. And so to me, my definition of going forward was like, how do I make myself financially resilient? And so kind of along the vein of what you'd mentioned earlier, it was like, okay, well, there's a clear and defined path. If I study pre-med classes, try to become a doctor, then I'll make this nice stable income with awesome benefits and whatnot. And then I'll have financial security. Well, it turns out like the top, I was terrible at like, chemistry and calculus and everything that went into that. And I kept trying and trying and trying and that didn't work out. And then somehow landed my way in startups and working in sales and whatnot. And I think that's where I finally was able to get a grasp on at least the foundation, which is like the career. And then from there, that's when I started thinking about, okay, I have a good job. I have some savings, but I want to be financially resilient much sooner than that. I think that's where my imagination started to go wild and started looking for different avenues, generate some income or invest, et cetera, that ultimately led to real estate. 
tell us what are some of the things that you tried? Did you try like starting a side business? Do you invest in the stock market? What did you try? Probably all of the above. I mean, I dabbled with stock market investing, realized that I probably don't have enough information or sort of like the pain tolerance to feel sort of the ups and downs and whatnot consistently. A funny one was that at one point I owned like eight cars. I think friends would look at me and are like, are you like obsessed with cars? I'm like, no, like this is purely as a side business because I would buy the cars. I would put them on Turo and get around and I'd make some income. And then I kind of like multiplied it out and like, okay, well, if I have Y cars, I have eight cars now. If I get to Y, then I'll be able to have this great income, et cetera. And that, that worked out fine. It just didn't scale operationally. And I didn't get to enough critical mass where maybe I could hand off sort of the day-to-day and whatnot. And then along the way, I mean, I think it was off of like, I used to commute to work and I think I heard a radio ad or something like that, AM radio, that would talk about sort of real estate investing and it's sort of for benefits where you generate the income, et cetera. And so through sort of those experiences, stumbled my way into rental properties and then ultimately became like sort of angled toward income security. And then obviously Dorvest ultimately was built off of that foundation too. I love there's a theme underlying that whole thing that I really like. I talk about this with my kids, with my friends. It's all about it's the idea of getting yourself in a position where you can have your imagination, where you can dream a little bit, where you can be ready to take advantage of things when they show up. It sounds like that's exactly what you did. Probably took some twists and turns you didn't expect, but you put yourself in the right position. So when the right thing came along, you could do it. What a great situation to be in. And then you figure out along the way, okay, this made sense. This made sense. But I'm open. I can do it if it comes along. So that's inspiring. Yeah, thank you. And by the way, I mean, in hindsight, it was never sort of like something that was intentionally planned like like that. I think because of back to the analogy, like I hit so many walls consistently, I've learned that like every time I'm hitting a wall, this is not a failure or frustration or setback. It's kind of just a chance for me to be able to turn and see something else. And then sometimes like I find something similar to like, the rental cars, like they were interesting. I would buy one, one led to two, led to three, et cetera. And then at some point it was like, it just didn't serve the lifestyle that I was hoping for. Whereas with like the real estate investing and the rental properties themselves, got into my first one, made so many mistakes along the way. But I think I saw enough light where one turned into two and whatnot, and I kept going. And then in hindsight, you look back and you're like, well, like I've done all this real estate, but at the time it was very much like, this is interesting. I'll try one. And then if one worked out, that turned into two and so on and so forth. The Roomba example is genius, by the way. I've never heard anybody compare their life to a Roomba, but it's so spot on. And I'm going to think of you every time I turn on my Roomba now, but you're so right. It's almost better when you run into a wall, right? Because then you know, hey, I can't go that way. That's not for me. And you turn around, you go another way. The worst is when, and maybe this is close to the Turo and get around analogy is like, I've watched my Roomba like go around a chair leg. It's like spinning in a circle. It's cleaning along the way as working. It's not running into a wall, but it's not really going anywhere. So yeah, I love it on so many different levels. Tell us about the, because people always get hung up, right? So you heard that the radio ad and it got your interest peaked. And, but there's so many steps, as our listeners know, between the point when you first hear about it and the point when you sign on the dotted line and you take over that first property. So tell us more about that journey. Yeah, I'd probably say there's a lot of naivete in hindsight too. I mean, again, we're kind of in this place in time sharing this time slot together and everything feels like it's in hindsight. And then I try to think back to like those moments. I think there was a lot of naivete, like theoretically, 
owning an investment home seemed perfect for my sort of aspirations. I wanted to be able to generate a little bit of income along the way. I wanted to have something that grew in value over time and built up this long-term nest egg. And then there was sort of this clear path, right? Like I could get into one, then one turned into two. And then at some figure, this becomes a really meaningful part of my finances. And so it checked off all of the boxes theoretically. I think the piece that I underestimated was just like, the operational, I mean, like all the operational moving pieces that happen along the way. And so I think the naivete paired with like, just like this stubborn determination pressed me to just figure it out and just like buy one home. And so I live in San Francisco at the time I was living in the Bay Area as well. And so I think the first step was like, okay, what's in a market that one is affordable. Like I'm pretty early into my career. I have some savings, but not that much savings. Something that's affordable. Back then it was still sort of like, what is something I could drive through and I could see and feel and walk around this home? And then thirdly, it was like, back then it was like the 1% rule. Like how do I find a home? And at the time it was like $100,000 home that rent for like $1,000 a month or so. Given those factors, found a home, actually found two homes from the same guy. And like, I was just like so excited because it took me a while to even find the homes, wrote offers, got in contract for both of those homes, couldn't qualify for financing for both so that I had to drop out of one. And I ultimately went through all the steps. I mean, this house was a rental home with an existing resident. And so I was trying to shortcut many of the steps. Like I didn't want to have to figure out how to fix up the home. I also didn't want to figure out how to like find a resident, et cetera. So anyways, found that home, ultimately ended up buying the home. First month in, resident moves out, puts a notice. Then I have to figure out how to renovate this thing. And then, yeah, one thing led to the next. Ultimately, it was fine, but lots of sort of hard lessons along the way. We'll get back to our conversation with Andrew in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. Mm-hmm. 
And now, back to our chat with Andrew Luong. And where was this? In Sacramento, California. So oh, about okay. a 90-minute drive outside of San Francisco. And the crazy part was, uh, at the time, and I thought it was the peak of the market then too, the guy that sold it to me, I think he bought it for around 40000 out of the, like in 2010 or something. I bought it in 2014 for 96000 or so. It was a three-bedroom, one-bath. I mean, that house is worth a lot more today. But yeah, it was a wild journey. Yeah, my guess is just like anything... You tell the story. I love the story, by the way, because we've all been through these situations where you look back and you say, well, yeah, I did this. I was hit by this and I needed to figure this out. And you figure it out. You get to the next thing. And when you live through it, my guess is it was probably tough. It was probably a hard set of events that hit you all at one time. And yeah, we're human beings. We try hard and we figure it out. But it's a great story, but I'll bet it was harder than what you're putting out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, in hindsight, it's easy to say and kind of connect all of the, the dots along the way. But during the time, like the last thing I wanted, like I had this full-time job, really demanding full-time job that I spent a lot of time and hours in. The last thing I wanted was to have to figure out how to renovate it and how to place a resident and how to find a property manager. And because I was optimizing for sort of cash flow, so overly optimizing for cash flow, I was in these like really tough neighborhoods that property managers would say, I can't manage your home because it's in that neighborhood and whatnot too. Like all of these were struggles along the way. And I think the theme that you mentioned that really resonates with me, Jason, is around the piece that I think we're all resilient. Like we could stand here and think about everything that could go wrong and then ultimately never getting started. Or we could embrace the fact that things will go wrong, but nothing is going to take you out or at least make sure that the things that can go wrong are not going to take you out. And then you kind of step one foot after the next and then challenges emerge. You kind of try to figure it out. So it sounds like that first property wasn't a runaway success, but it got you in the game and it taught you, you learned some things along the way, but it worked enough that you were like, okay, I'm going to go back out there and do it again and again and again. So sounds like you, a number of these properties. And at what point did you start thinking, wait a second, I can help other people do this too. Yeah, to comment. I think it's fun to kind of talk about all the horror stories that happened along the way. I think the two biggest moments were after all this pain and struggle and figuring it out, where it felt like there was some reward or light on the other side was, of course, Receiving the first rent check, I think, was a really amazing moment because that's when it became real, right? Like, you take this $1,000 rent check, you multiply it out across, like, whatever this aspirational portfolio that you could have one day is, and, and that becomes meaningful. And it becomes meaningful in sort of a duration of time that feels achievable. And so I think that was one. And then secondly, that's kind of where I learned the power of cash out refinances. Six months later, I think it appraised for like 130 or some. And so was able to get all of my initial down payment back out and then kind of move on to the next. And so the combination of those two was where it felt like it was really powerful for me. Similar to, I think, a lot of the themes that might be surfacing from this conversation, but very organically as well, to answer your question around when I reflected back and realized that I wanted to support others in kind of their journey as well, organically. I continue to do this on the side and sort of nights and weekends. And then friends would begin. Once I amassed a little bit of a track record for myself, friends started coming to me and were like, hey, like have a job, have some savings, dabbled with investing. I think real estate is really interesting. Can you show me how? And so that led to like this 30 point checklist of here's how you interview a real estate agent. Here's how you write offers. Here's how you 
do inspections and like all of these steps along the way that were ironed out and in this one playbook. And I would hand it out to people and then I would send them off on their way. And I'd be like, Hey, like I'm available. You have my cell. You could call me. You could text me. I love this stuff. If you have a home, send it over. I'll look at it with you. Like if you want to negotiate, like send it over. I'll do it with you. All that. And then it crickets. And then I would send them off. And then we bump into each other like at a friend's house or something in like three or four months. I'm like, how'd you do? And like, over the course of five or so years and 60 plus conversations. And I think you both probably know the answer to this. The answer was like, couldn't get started. And can I just give you this capital and you do it for me? And I think somehow along the way, the light bulb went off where there was folks that were intrigued and interested and sort of had the capital and the intent, but sort of bridging the gap between having the interest in the capital and kind of actually making it happen. I think that was kind of the gap that I felt was there and ultimately became the the genesis of Dorbus. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about this, is so much in line with the story that Julie and I always tell about how we got started as well. It's like all these organic conversations, right? As you're starting to build up that track record and you have that passion, people are naturally drawn to you and they just start asking all sorts of questions. And then you have every intent of teaching them the 30 point checklist, right? You're like, here, yeah, I'll open up the whole playbook. I'll show you everything that I did. You can do it too. And you give them all the tools and you want them to succeed. And same thing with us. We'd check back in and nothing. They'd say, oh yeah, no, I just have this money. I just have this pile of money. Can I just give it to you? And so obviously we started down the syndication path and do group investments. Tell us for anybody who's listening, who may not know about DoorVest and everything that you're doing, tell them a little bit about what DoorVest is and how you help people. Yeah, seems like a very similar story that led to slightly different sort of models and whatnot. But yeah, so With Dorvas specifically, I mean, at a high level, we make it easy for anyone anywhere to buy and own an investment home online with our mission being to help individuals advance towards financial security. And so very much kind of the concept of life and money, both I think live in sort of the term financial security. So kind of how we go about doing that is, well, we'll start with a customer and kind of their investment objective. So how much capital did they have saved as we kind of just talked about? Or how much money were they looking to put toward a down payment? What sort of returns were they hoping for? And kind of probably the most important one to me is kind of what's their risk profile and what are the trade-offs there? Like, are we looking for a home that's purely optimized for yield and cash flow? Or are we looking for an awesome home in a great neighborhood? Maybe the trade-off is a little bit of cash flow, but it's in an awesome neighborhood. It's kind of set it and forget it. You don't have to worry as much about kind of the volatility of the home or maybe something in between. We'll start with those factors. And then we at DoorVest kind of go to market and then we'll source homes based on the customer's criteria. So we'll take their objectives. We'll find a home based on their criteria. We'll bring it back to them and kind of ask them for their final blessing. So if they're like, hey, this one's not for me, we'll say it's okay. Just share us the reason why. And then that'll help us refine as we keep going back to market. And then we go until we find something that they do like. If they like it, we'll ask them to sign a contract for the home. We'll then buy the home on their behalf, renovate it and lease it out. And so the consumer gets sort of this bulletproof investment home. That's also income generating. Kind of back to the story from earlier, the the intention was really to shrink the gap between having the capital and the interest to actually owning the home. And so that's everything leading up to the home. The consumer buys it back from us. We get a cut of that transaction. As they close and take full title of the home, we'll manage it too. And so kind of what we've seen was that a lot of 
customers are interested in the home. I think the home checks out and everything. And then the secondary piece is like, okay, well, I have a busy job. I have a family, whatever it is. Like, I can't be involved in this home on the day to day. And so kind of taking on the management on the back end. And then just lastly, like what's important to us is uh, hopefully we help customers buy their first investment home. 70% of our customers are first-time homeowners. So kind of two birds with one stone. And then after that, supporting as they build out their portfolio over time as well. It feels like the impact quotient about how you're set up is really, really huge here. I mean, you get to know these customers, investors, really at a very low level, I guess it would be. You get to know really what they want, how they want to spend their money, and ultimately where they're going to invest to a specific investment. So you get to know these folks and you get to have an impact directly on their family. Was that always the intention when you got into the investment side with these customers or did you have the intention of maybe letting people put their money to work in more of a, I don't know, a larger investment? Did you intend to go into it at this really impactful level like that? Yeah. Some of this is actually intentional. There's many things in kind of our conversation today where it was kind of just like went out there, did it, and then kind of built upon it. But I think there's bits and pieces that are intentional. And I think this was definitely one of them. Like, I think it goes back a lot to kind of the story from before where it's like, I owned my investment rentals. They did really well for me. I felt very blessed, had the naivete and the stubbornness to kind of get started and knew full well that a lot of folks didn't have that. And so how do we as a team at Dorvest kind of build a platform to give people the same sort of upside that I was able to participate in without sort of same risk or the same sort of ability to stomach everything as I went through. And so the intention was very much to have sort of this deeply personal connection to our customers where we understand their background and their history and their savings and their income and their entire financial picture, and then try to curate an investment home based on that criteria. And then sometimes we say like, based on what you're mentioning, like you want to generate a lot of income really quickly and you might need this capital in six months or something. It might just not be a good fit because of X, Y, and Z. And that's okay for us too. But anyways, it was definitely intentionally centered around working with an individual or a family, learning about what they're looking for and trying to curate a home based on that criteria. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, to have that kind of a direct impact on these families, I mean, you must be able to look back and see some of the transactions and say, yeah, we were part of that whole thing. And look what's happened to their family and look where they are today. I mean, that, we do the same thing. A lot of our investors are repeat investors and we help people transition their lives from a financial point of view. They create passive income in a way that they just didn't have access to before. So it's really, for us, it's inspirational to be part of that. So it sounds like it is for you too, which is great. Yeah. I mean, definitely probably very similar feelings and sentiment as well. It's not easy, right? Like, I mean, you are working on something that's in effectively, there's not many other individuals that are kind of doing a similar model and approach. And I think by definition, when you're trying to do something new, it's challenging. And I think we talked about a lot of the challenges earlier, but there's oftentimes ups and downs and whatnot. And I do think sort of the piece around the impact and sort of this personal sense of fulfillment that we are ultimately, by definition, doing something that positively contributes to all our customers and these families that we work with. I think that's kind of the driver that gets us excited, motivated, and able to kind of get get up the next day and do it all again. Yes. And that right there, that's exactly why we were so excited to have you on the show, because I think our interests, our vision are so aligned in what we're trying to do through our various ventures and platforms. And so look at you now. I mean, you came from having identified financial security as 
something that you wanted to build in your own life. And not only did you achieve that, but now you're helping many, many, many others to do the same for themselves. So such an incredible story and so glad we got to dive in. I know there's much more to cover, but we're going to move into our Life and Money Show Spotlight Round. We're going to ask you three questions we ask everyone. Andrew, you ready? Let's do it. All right. First question. What's one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Yeah, I think a lot of things. I have to dissect it into some of the most impactful ones. I think a lot of it has to boil down to this concept of sort of an idyllic life. As I go through my day to day, and there's interactions that make me feel a certain way. Maybe something frustrates me. Maybe something really excites me. Maybe it was a conversation that was scheduled for an hour, but went on for almost two hours. Like, What are sort of these different things that invoke different emotions? And how do I continue to build my life forward around those emotions? Like, For instance, if something really frustrated me, how do I dig deeper and understand, am I frustrated because I was triggered because because I have associations to my childhood as an only child and my parents arguing over money. And therefore, if we talk about the bill with some friends today, that triggers me. And how do I overcome that piece? Or is it like a sense of deep personal connection that I was hoping for? And I got it through this interaction. And the reason is X, Y, and Z. I think a lot of it has to do with just like starting with the emotions and deeply reflecting on it. And then seeing how I can apply that going forward has been the general theme. And then sleep, exercise, and eat healthy, all the usual stuff. I'm glad you started with the emotions. I'm sure Jason will resonate with this too, but that's such a critical part of a life by design. Knowing what the true emotions are rather than having the emotions control you, but really being able to get to the root of it. And that's where a life by design stems from is the ability to design what your experience is going to be like. Love that. All right. Second question then, what's a life or money hack that has really helped you on your journey that you can share with our audience today? I'd probably reference a book and I'm curious if either of you read it. It's almost a classic at this point, but The 4-Hour Workweek by uh, Tim Ferriss was one of the books that I think really shaped how I view life and money. And I mean, ultimately, my personal investments in Dorvis, etc. And I think a lot of it has to do with like debunking sort of this belief, this historical belief that you work for your 40 prime years in order to build up a net worth or a large bank account, etc., in order to live out your last 20 years or whatever that is. I think Tim Ferriss thinks a lot about or talked a lot about sort of like, here's the life that you want to live. Here's how much income, here's how much expenses you have, and here's how you save up or afford sort of this life. And then taking that one by one and knocking down sort of your objectives and the things that you want. So anyways, I'd probably recommend the four-hour work week. Definitely was a great read for me. It's a huge mindset shift to go from thinking that the only way to do it is working 40 hours a week for 40 years of your life to just pulling back the curtain just a little bit and seeing, wait a second, is that really the way that it needs to be? Or is there another way? And then taking that framework and maybe you don't get it down to four hours a week, or maybe you get it down to less than four hours a week. But regardless, just having a framework to think about how can I to know that it's possible and to start shaping your life in that way so that you don't have to blindly follow what you've been taught. 
Yeah, I mean, just to add on that as well, I mean, I think it's similar to kind of what we talked about earlier around the intentionality. I don't own a red Ferrari and I don't intend to, but maybe your dream is to, and that's fine. And so like, how do you turn that dream into like maybe one day with lots of vagueness to like, okay, this red Ferrari, maybe I buy it used and then that turns into a certain sticker price and then a certain monthly payment. And it's like, and it just becomes this equation that you're kind of running. And then I think, by going through that exercise, you one, like reinforce whether or not you actually want the red Ferrari. And if you do, you should by all means figure out your way to get there. Of course, it'll take some sacrifices. And the number two, there's sort of this tactical playbook that you could work backwards from where you kind of run the math and then you work your way towards there. I think that's really important. And then Secondly, to your point of like getting it down to this to four hours and whatnot, by the way, like I work nowhere near four hours, much, many more hours than that. And it's become not like a chore. It's become a work of sort of, I do this because I enjoy it and it gives me purpose and fulfillment, et cetera. Of course, granted, I'm in a position to be able to say that. I think the ultimate point to kind of get across is just like intentionality with kind of how you're spending your day and your life. And that's such a great point too, right? Is that if your work doesn't feel like work, then why limit it four hours a week? If you love doing it, if you're so passionate about it, it doesn't have, it's not about the amount of hours. It's getting that privilege to do what you love every day. And it doesn't feel like work anymore. Yeah, absolutely. You also mentioned the the word intentionality, which I think is huge. I was thinking as you were talking that last piece, it's exactly what went through my head. So it's funny that you said the word. It isn't just showing up for a job. It isn't just sitting down for a certain amount of hours and doing X, Y, and Z. It's about setting your life intentionally to have certain outcomes, whether it's family, whether it's it could be money, it could be anything, but have a goal and work towards that. So intentionality is massive. It's what makes the difference between having to go to work and doing something that's inspirational in your life. So yeah, it's huge. Mm -hmm. All right. Final question. What's one thing that you're doing right now to help make the world a better place? Probably a number of answers that come to mind. I'll try to keep this away from kind of my day-to-day work with Dorvest, even though I do think that we're we're doing pretty awesome things and hopefully have a, a really deep impact, deep impact on a lot of different individuals. I think in terms of like how to sort of better improve the lives of others, I think it's important to kind of lean into areas that you feel strongly about and you think you have sort of this unique advantage or understanding or set of skills or knowledge around. And so I think for me, it's kind of maybe two things. Like on one end, it's around sort of the world of personal finances and things of that nature. So what are some of the playbooks or the tools or the mental frameworks that I could sort of pass on to others? Like the concept of economic empowerment, I'm like deeply obsessed with. On the other side, there's sort of the piece around sort of business, entrepreneurship, sort of getting something off the ground? And how do I sort of transfer my learnings through my heart, like the school of hard knocks that I went through with the startup as well, to sort of this next generation of folks that are bringing amazing ideas to the world. And so I think a lot of it boils down to time and sort of knowledge transfer. 
Mm-hmm. And man, everything that you're doing, you're talking about economic empowerment, I mean, in your personal life, as well as through what you do with Dorvest. And it's so much in line with everything that we're all about too. And I know that through this conversation, not only have you inspired others, but I'm, I'm sure that you've piqued their interest as well. Even for those, including myself, who have invested in rental properties before, I'm look always looking for ways to simplify that. I'm like, oh, yep, they can manage it for me. They can rent renovate it for me. Yep, that sounds good. So tell everybody, Andrew, if they're interested, they want to follow up and learn more, what's the best place that they can go? Yeah, pretty straightforward. Doorvest.com, door as in front door, vest as in invest.com, or shoot me an email at andrew at doorvest.com. I think hopefully it's become pretty apparent in the conversation, but I definitely don't think I have the answers to most things. In fact, probably a very narrow set of answers. If they have any questions, maybe I could answer it or reroute to someone who, who might be more qualified than I. That's the best, isn't it, Jason? When they're humble in addition to all the success, amazing. Andrew Luong, co-founder and CEO of Dorvest. Andrew, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and your experience with us and our listeners today. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Life & Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out GoodEggInvestments.com and be sure to join the Life & Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 